From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the CDC, there are more than 7 million children in the United States who suffer from asthma. Asthma is a condition where the airways narrow and swell, triggering coughing, wheezing, and shortness of breath. For those children who also have allergies, asthma and allergies can be a case of double trouble, as allergies can trigger asthma attacks. On today's program, we'll discuss childhood asthma and allergies with a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, we'll learn more about attention deficit hyperactivity disorder in children and understanding the difficult-to-treat hoarding disorder. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. You know, you may wonder what allergies and asthma have in common besides making them miserable. Well, a lot, it turns out. Allergies and asthma often occur together. I thought you were just going to say they both start with the letter A, (laughs) but there's more to it. Good point also, (laughs) yep. The same substances that trigger your hay fever symptoms like pollen, dust mites, and pet dander can also cause asthma signs and symptoms. And in some people, skin or food allergies can also cause asthma symptoms. When it comes to children, asthma can be especially problematic. Asthma is one of the leading causes of emergency department visits, hospitalizations, and missed school days. Here to discuss is Dr. Martha Hartz, the Division Chair of Pediatric Allergy and Immunology in the Mayo Clinic Children's Center. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Hartz. It's been too long. I know. It's been a while. Yeah, yeah a few years. Dr. Hartz, good to have you. So explain uh, to all of us, what when, you, when we talk about asthma, what are we really talking about? What's the problem? The best way to discuss asthma is to say it's recurrent bronchospasm. So um, it's inflammation inside the airways that cause or trigger bronchospasm, increased mucus production, um, some uh, need for a bronchodilator. And if it happens one or two times, we say, well, you had some bronchitis perhaps or viral-induced bronchospasm, but if it happens recurrently, then it has an increased likelihood of happening again. And then at a certain point, we call it asthma. Now, most people say that asthma is probably a variety of diseases that we're lumping under one category to call asthma, but for the sake of parents and patients, what it feels like is I have these recurrent quote, asthmatic bronchitis episodes that keep continue to recur. So, that make it difficult to breathe. Uh, yes. So patients feel like they have a difficult time getting air out. Kids will describe it as feeling like they're breathing through a straw. Kids will also talk about chest pain. Older children and adults usually are able to characterize it a little more subtly than pain, though may cause, say, chest tightness. And usually patients can identify a trigger. So usually in children, the trigger most often is a viral infection. Secondly would be exercise. And thirdly would be uh, allergic triggers, so aeroallergens, breathing in things that 
trigger or the response. Yeah. Do, do we know why some people get asthma and, and who's at risk? The patients that are at risk are patients that have a family history of any of the atopic diseases. And the atopic diseases include asthma, atopic dermatitis, mm-hmm. allergic rhinitis, Food allergies, inflammation of the nose. Yes, um, stuffiness, post-nasal drip, drainage from the nose, and then some other less common conditions like eosinophilic esophagitis, which is almost like a asthma of the esophagus. The people that are at risk are if you have one of those conditions or more than one of those conditions then you're more likely to have the others. So if you have food allergy, you're more likely to have asthma. If you have atopic dermatitis or eczema, you're more likely to later develop asthma. And then what is going on in the airways basically is swelling of the lining of the airways and increased mucus production. And then that leads to bronchospasm. And that's what people take uh, their inhalers for for asthma is they take it for one uh, preventative medication reduces the inflammation and twitchiness of the airways and then the medications most patients are familiar with uh, is like albuterol for example that helps um, open up the airways and relieve bronchospasm. It seems that there's a lot more asthma now than in previous generations. Am I just becoming more aware of it, or Uh is is that the case? Yes, it is the case. So it's actually stabilized recently, but over time in westernized countries, asthma is increasing in prevalence, as is food allergies, as is atopic dermatitis, as is allergic rhinitis, so and eosinophilic esophagitis, or EOE. So all of these things are becoming more common, and in particular in westernized countries. Why? (laughs) Yeah, so patients always ask this question. And so we have some theories. So, for example, if you go, patients themselves who immigrate from another country that's a developing country will remark on how their own children have these atopic diseases, but their extended family back in their country they came from do not have these. So there's lots of theories that developed after this epidemiology or this difference between populations was identified. And one of them is called, it's it's a hypothesis that's been around for about 20 years is the hygiene hypothesis. So our very hygienic world sends your immune system, the T cells part of your immune system, down the allergy pathway instead of either down the pathway that that arm of the immune system was meant to do, which is fight worms and weird things. Most of the world's population, like a third of it, has, I guess that's not most, but have parasites. But you go to a Western country and that's not the case. The other thing is if early on in life, um, you're exposed to endotoxin. Toxin in stools. Stool is makes you less likely to develop um, allergies. Um, if you're mm. exposed to infectious illness, so there's some things that 
follow the same pattern in the United States. So, for example, if you are born to a farm family where no matter how clean your house is, there's some animal um, products that you, you can measure that's increased, those kids have less asthma, food allergies. And so if you have a dog, and most of us who know dogs, they're not the neatest. <laughs> so if your child is born to a household with dogs, you're less likely to develop these allergic conditions. So our hygiene in this country is too good. A little dirt or whatever is a little bit okay. Dirt is okay. In fact, I have a colleague who tells her daughter to uh, have her grandson lick the floor in O'Hare Airport, and that would be good (laughs) for Beth Dolly, (laughs) which is a little extreme. But but there are upsides to our hygiene. There's not as much um, illness at birth. Um, there, There isn't as often do you have tuberculosis or a lot of these uh, hepatitis C. A lot of illnesses are lowered, infectious illness in uh, westernized countries, but typically that's not a lot we can control. Perhaps at some point we might be able to give babies things like endotoxin to help prevent these things. So the hygiene thing can be overdone. Yes, it can, from an allergy (laughs) standpoint. (laughs) Right. We're talking allergies and asthma with the Division Chair of Pediatric Allergy and Immunology at the Mayo Clinic Children's Center, Dr. Martha Hartz. Time for a short break. When we come back, myth or matter of fact, children can outgrow their asthma. We'll find out. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are with the Division Chair of Pediatric Allergy and Immunology at the Mayo Clinic Children's Center in Rochester, Dr. Martha Hart. So let's go with the myth or matter of fact. Myth or matter of fact, Dr. Hart's children can outgrow their asthma. Myth or fact? We don't tend to say the word outgrow, uh, but it can become asymptomatic. Uh, so most people who develop as asthma as an adult will have a history of having had it as a child. So if patients get markedly better, we can take them off a of medication. But I always caution them that someday in the future, if they find themselves having these symptoms again, then that means the asthma has reared its head again. We don't use the word outgrow forever kind of thing. So uh, let me just summarize then about asthma. You said that it's a condition in which there is spasm and inflammation of the airways. The number one risk factor is for having a family history of asthma or other diseases that you, you mentioned. And most patients can be treated with inhalers successfully. Yes. So there are two types of medications we use for asthma. One we call the rescue medication or the symptom reliever, and that's the albuterol is typically the one that's used. And we have people use that if they experience symptoms of cough, wheeze, or shortness of breath. And then for prevention, we use typically an inhaled corticosteroid, something like fluticasone that you... Anti-inflammatory. It's it's a steroid that is not like the bodybuilding steroids. It's an uh, 
anti-inflammatory steroid that you breathe in through an inhaler and we that's the hardest concept for patients when they feel better is that we want them to keep taking the medicine because it makes your airways less twitchy if you get one of your triggers like a viral uri Um, so that preventative medicine is that inhaled corticosteroid, like hydrocortisone type of stuff. And then um, there's sometimes we use what's called a long-acting bronchodilator in combination with the steroid as a preventative. So So basically the treatment is inhalers of one kind or another, either for prevention or an acute attack. Yes. Now, sometimes you get a bad enough attack that we need some oral prednisone, and that will give for a short course if people get a really bad flare and their their inhaler, their albuterol rescue inhaler, isn't keeping them asymptomatic very long in between uses. How do allergies and asthma go hand in hand? Why uh, um, Why are they mixed? Um, okay, so the, what I like to tell patients is that allergies can be a trigger for all of these conditions. So you can have uh, allergies as a trigger for asthma, but it doesn't have to be allergies for a trigger of your nose symptoms, but you can have non-allergic nose symptoms. Allergies can trigger your eczema, but they don't have to. And that's a skin problem, eczema. Eczema is, yeah, it's a skin problem. So um, so it's more like the allergies can be a trigger for the asthma. So patients will notice, for example, that they get around their cat and they start to cough or wheeze. It could also trigger nose symptoms or nasal symptoms as well. So, What about uh, peanuts? We hear once in a while about a child who has a severe uh, peanut allergy that maybe they didn't know about and it actually can... It can result in death. Uh, should you expose your child to peanuts at a, at a young age? So, okay, yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. It's um, so current recommendations just within the last couple of years um, are that if patients are at high risk of a peanut allergy, then uh, they should be exposed early. And that'll help prevent peanut allergy. So, uh, and so there's been some good research to support this. And so patients with significant eczema, the skin rash early in life, or uh, another food allergy like egg allergy, those patients should be assessed by their doctor. And we might have the parents introduce peanut in a very specific way as early as four to six months of age. So if you do, if you find out that you have a a peanut allergy, uh, some of these kids and probably even adults carry an EpiPen. Tell us how that works. Okay, so one of the, the really important parts of having any type of food allergy is aside from um, ending up having to um, avoid taking the food, and we give a a lot of instruction in terms of uh, how to read labels. We uh, also prescribe an auto-injector of epinephrine, and that's in case you did accidentally get the food allergy. So patients 
always ingest um, the allergenic food when they least expect it. So our expectation for is that they carry epinephrine uh, in case of accidental ingestion, and it's like it's life saving. So. You mentioned that um, before when we were talking about asthma, you need to know the different things that trigger the asthma. Right. Um, when it comes to allergies, can different types of allergies trigger asthma? I mean, you mentioned that part, but like food allergies, can that trigger asthma? Um, generally, for a trigger for asthma, we're looking at aeroallergens, so things in the air, pollen, animal dander, house dust mite. For food allergies, the only way, it's not like a mystery food that could be doing it. It's not like a hidden milk allergy is causing you to, triggering your asthma. It would be more like if you have an acute, like an ingestion of peanut, for example, and you have asthma, then that in the context of that bad allergic reaction, it can trigger bronchospasm. So patients with asthma and food allergy have a higher risk of a severe reaction when they do have an accidental ingestion. And the severe reaction is that the breathing tube squeezed down so hard that the, the patient suffocates. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and so patients, we do like let the schools know for that patients that have asthma are at higher risk of a severe reaction to the food. Well, obviously don't want that to happen. No. So have no. an EpiPen with you. Yes. You Always have, a, have a your EpiPen. Yep. What does the future uh, for children for pediatric allergy and asthma, what does that hold? The thing I'm most excited about is the immunotherapy that's being developed for food allergy. And one is an epicutaneous patch, very similar to a nicotine patch where we, and it's going to be approved first for peanut and then slowly increase the amount of peanut through the patch and avoid a lot of the problems with desensitization now. So, so that would be for somebody that you know has a peanut allergy or somebody who is, you know is at risk for getting for, one? It, it would be a treatment. All right. We hope that work is successful. Yes. Thanks so much for being with us, Dr. Martha Hartz, Division Chair, Pediatric Allergy and Immunology at the Mayo Clinic Children's Center. Thank you. You're welcome. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll discuss attention deficit hyperactivity disorder in children. And later on in the program, understanding hoarding disorder. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. It's flu season, and according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, deaths from seasonal flu have been increasing worldwide. The CDC says new estimates indicate between 291,000 and 646,000 people worldwide die due to flu complications. Dr. Gregory Poland, director of Mayo Clinic's Vaccine Research Group, says it's vital that everyone aged six months and older be vaccinated. In the U.S. alone, he says, depending on the year, we'll have 
3,000 to 30,000 people or more die from influenza, and that is preventable. Dr. Poland says very young children and older adults are the ones who have the most complications from the flu. About 90% of the deaths due to influenza occur in people 65 and older. This year, two influenza vaccines for seniors are available. Now we have an adjuvanted vaccine to boost the immune response to the influenza component. So people age 65 and older should get one of the two vaccines meant for seniors. And Dr. Poland says don't underestimate influenza. And in other news, let's talk about stress and how to decrease it in your life and why that's important to do, why it's important to be able to say no. Sure, it's easier to say yes, but at what price to your peace of mind? Now, keep in mind that being overloaded is individual, meaning just because your coworker can juggle 10 committees with seeming ease doesn't mean you should be able to be in several committees too. Only you can know what's too much. So consider these reasons for saying no. Saying no isn't necessarily selfish. It means you'll be able to do a few things well instead of lots of things part way. Saying no can allow you to try new things. Always saying yes isn't healthy. When you're overcommitted and under too much stress, you're more likely to feel run down and possibly get sick. Saying yes can cut others out, meaning you can let what you want to do and who you want to see in. Focus on what matters most. Examine your obligations before making any new commitments. Weigh the yes-to-stress ratio. For example, making a batch of cookies for the school bake sale will take far less time than heading up the school fundraising committee. Take guilt out of the equation and sleep on it. Take time before you answer and things may become clear. Saying no when appropriate could help make your new year a better year. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, commonly known as ADHD, is a chronic condition that affects millions of children and often continues into adulthood. ADHD includes a combination of persistent problems such as difficulty sustaining attention, hyperactivity, and impulsive behavior. While treatment won't cure ADHD, it can help a great deal with the symptoms. Here to discuss is Mayo Clinic pediatrician Dr. Rachel Lynch. Dr. Lynch is also part of the REACH Institute faculty. REACH prepares primary care providers to treat pediatric patients with mental health disorders in the primary care setting. Welcome to the program, Dr. Lynch. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. How do you know when your child is ADHD or not? Yeah, so this is a tough question, and I end up talking with parents and families about this a lot. Um, And I often tell them this is one of those things that we don't have a blood test for or an X-ray that tells us yes or no, you have ADHD or you do not. So it's tricky to figure it out sometimes. And what we try to do is get as much information as we can from a number of sources in the child's life. So that pretty much always means talking with their teachers and finding out more from kids and parents what life is like at home. And we have to think really broadly about a lot of things that might be causing symptoms that look like ADHD, like things like sleep problems, or maybe a hearing problem is making it hard for them to pay attention in school, or a learning problem, or even things like anxiety, or in older kids, things like depression. So 
we have to think broadly and get a lot of information to figure it out. What is the sleep problem? Just the not enough time, not enough hours. Yeah, so if kids definitely aren't laying down and sleeping early enough for the time they have to get up in the morning, that can be a problem. But even if they spend a lot of time in bed, but they're having snoring or breathing difficulties while they're sleeping, or they're really restless and kicking their legs around a lot, those could be things that are disrupting their sleep. And they wake up after a good amount of time in bed, but not rested enough to focus and behave well during the day. So Dr. Lynch, we have a very young household mm-hmm. and our oldest, who's four, will sometimes be pulled out from the school and teachers saying, oh, he's acting out. Now, is that ADHD or is it just that he's not being stimulated enough? It's a great question. Um, so for kids that maybe aren't interested in what's being presented at the time because they've already learned this material or or maybe it's too hard for them and they're just not interested in it, they may choose to run about the room, you know, or lay down on the floor. And until we know that this is really causing them, we always say impairment, but like it's making it hard for this child to get through their day to do the things they need to do in their life at that time by having fun with friends and learning in specific environments. Until it's really clear it's causing impairment in more than one setting, we would not call it um, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. I thought that's just kids being kids. Right? So often that's the case. And the younger kids are, the harder that is to sort out. So when they're three or four, it's very difficult, and they need a lot of evaluation to figure out if that's really what's going on. As kids get older, it's a little um, easier to tell because we know what to expect from them developmentally as they get a little bit older. Are there other conditions that go along with ADHD that can help you say, oh, yeah, this might actually be something we should be looking into? Yeah, a lot of kids who have ADHD may have other things going on that we need to help figure out and see how we can help them. Many, if not most, of kids with ADHD have normal intelligence, but some do also have a learning disorder. And so knowing those two things is really important when they're in the school setting so we can help them as much as we can. Anxiety can also go along with ADHD Mm. and they can look similar. So it can take some time and, and a lot of information gathering to figure out is one or both of these things going on and which is the most important thing to treat. As kids get older, things like depression can also be happening. And um, even we worry about things like substance use as kids get older, things like uh, tics or or brief abnormal movements or uh, obsessive compulsive disorder can also sometimes be present at the same time. So it's a lot to to watch for. It must be very hard then to diagnose because as you said, there's a wide spectrum of these conditions and symptoms. So how do you actually make the diagnosis of ADHD? Yeah, Uh, there are different parts to making the diagnosis, and one is this information gathering. So we use, and it's recommended, that standardized questionnaires are used that get completed by the teachers and parents. And uh, there's a certain score that helps us see, is this something that we should likely be worried about? But it's not just the questionnaires themselves, or anybody could, that would be pretty straightforward, Um, but it also involves a medical evaluation to make sure there aren't other medical causes that are causing similar symptoms, and uh, a good psychosocial evaluation, the family history. We take all these clues together um, to help us figure it out. Do kids outgrow it? Most parents who are trying to figure this out with their children, and especially if we say your child has ADHD, that's one of the first things they want to know, is this going to get better? And we keep seeing ADHD, or keep saying ADHD. Um, So part of that is the attention deficit 
disorder, and a part of that is a hyperactivity mm-hmm. disorder. And the hyperactivity definitely tends to get better um, for kids that have this diagnosis. And overall, the attention and the hyperactivity aspects get better for most kids to the point that about two-thirds of them are not really impaired as they get older into adulthood and, and needing treatment. But there is a remaining, uh, you know, a third or so of children who get this diagnosis that into adulthood do need treatments or really good strategies to overcome an attention uh, deficit. Or go into a career of radio. <laughs> it works out so well. Yeah, or other, there are many exactly. careers where it works out, it can work out quite well. And, and part of the trick is figuring that out and helping your, your sure. child and adolescent figure that out. Tell us about the REACH Institute. Uh, the, so the REACH Institute is something I've been a part of um, for about five or six years. I got to attend a course where they were teaching primary care providers about mental health concerns in primary care. And I really went to the course to learn about it because of the ADHD work that I was doing and realized I, I really need to be even better at identifying anxiety and other mental health disorders. And so I, I took the course and they were really looking for more primary care providers to kind of be the messengers or teachers to help people understand we can really help kids and families more who are suffering um, and struggling with uh, mental health illnesses. So now I've been part of the, the teaching faculty there and I get to teach in in exciting places. Um, I just taught in Palo Alto, California, and it inspires me a lot to see other people who want to come and learn because they're seeing these concerns in their clinics. And it's wonderful to be able to help and have that impact on children and families um, as we help other providers. We've been talking about attention deficit hyperactivity disorder with Mayo Clinic pediatrician Dr. Rachel Lynch. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Lynch. Thanks. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, understanding hoarding disorder, you're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. Getting and saving an excessive number of items, gradual buildup of clutter in living spaces, and difficulty discarding things are usually the first signs and symptoms of hoarding disorder. A person with hoarding disorder experiences distress at the thought of getting rid of items. Hmm, that sounds rather familiar. Uh-oh. Uh, hoarding ranges <laughs> from mild to severe. In some cases, hoarding may not have much impact on your life, while in other cases, it seriously affects your functioning on a daily basis. Uh, People with hoarding disorder may not see it as a problem, making treatment especially challenging. Here to discuss treatment for hoarding disorder is Mayo Clinic psychologist Dr. Craig Sawchuk. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Sawchuk. It's great to see you again. Great. Thank you for having me. Before you got here, we were saying, I used to love the show Hoarders because it made me feel better about myself. And then I realized, oh, wait, these people actually have a disorder. No, I don't like watching that show anymore. Yeah, it's a pretty a pretty tough show. I mean, it, it's in the era of, of showing some mental health issues on TV, and uh, it, it shows the reality of you know some of the impairments and living conditions that these folks go through. I have some qualms with exactly how the, uh, the program uh, dealt with the treatment aspect of things, but I'm hoping we can clarify some of that today. So what makes it uh, obsessive-compulsive disorder? Yeah, actually, originally, from a diagnostic standpoint, it was embedded within uh, the obsessive-compulsive, uh, as a variant of obsessive-compulsive disorder. Um, but but 
however, the phenomenology and the symptomatology of, of hoarding is actually different than OCD. Um, hoarding is actually more common than OCD, uh, that it feels less ritualistic than you would see with OCD. And then also with um, traditional OCD, they have obsessions about thoughts that really cause them a lot of distress and that they fear. Whereas with hoarders, when you think about um, acquiring things and holding on to things, there's more of a positive affect you know, with that, the desire to hold on to these things rather than the fear that goes along with it. So in the DSM-5, which is the latest iteration, they've actually separated out hoarding disorder um, and stopped calling it compulsive hoarding. So Dr. Sorsha, we all uh, collect things. I like to collect things, and I didn't think I had a particular disorder. When does that become uh, a problem for people? Yeah, there's really two markers that show up for this. This is actually one of them is, um, and this is the only one as far as I know in the, in the DSM-5 that uh, signifies this, is that when an actual living space becomes functionally impaired, so it cannot be used for its intended purpose. So we think of a kitchen. It's where we prepare food. Um, and if the clutter is getting in the way of it's uh, piling up on the counters, across the stove, um, getting in the way of, uh, you know, the, the kitchen table, so where a person can eat um, a bathroom that becomes so cluttered you can't use it to be able to go to the bathroom. That's one thing when the impairment in the living space for its intended purpose. The second is functional impairment with the individual, and this can happen uh, with um, social relationships and breakdown in social relationships, conflicts, um, inability to sustain a job, go into work, um, or uh, depression from isolation that can occur. Speaking of depression, do hoarders have other mental health issues that go along with hoarding? Yes, it's actually more common than not. And this is, again, another differentiation between um, OCD and hoarding, that it's, in fact, much more likely that hoarders will have a comorbid depressive disorder as opposed to another anxiety disorder, which the reverse can actually be true for traditional obsessive compulsive disorder. So what are the risk factors for developing hoarding disorder? Yeah, there's a few different ones. Um, one, we can think about uh, biologic risk factors. We know that hoarding uh, does tend to run in families, and it may not be the full condition of hoarding, but sometimes the traits towards being a pack rat and collecting and having difficulties uh, discarding things. Um, but there definitely is a, a larger um, proportion with uh, genetic influence there. It tends to run in first-degree family members. Secondly is that we think of environmental risk factors. So this could be isolation. This tends to happen in private. So it's uh, typically this um, condition goes on for a long period of time before the impairments come to light or even like family members or close friends even see this. So just the nature of how this can fly under the radar, it can happen. Then there's also more psychological things that can be risk factors. Um, trauma history can be common among these folks and even loss. And uh, in many cases uh, that folks can identify a particular point in time where the hoarding uh, just kind of flared up. One, one other factor that uh, is important, too, and, and this is kind of the nature-nurture uh, thing, is because it runs in families, sometimes it's modeling. You know, people learn that everything has value, can be used at some point in some time, don't be wasteful. Um, and when that's modeled to you, you carry those things forward. I think it's interesting that, uh, as we said in the introduction, a lot of people who have this hoarding disorder don't think it's a problem 
so if there's, you know, something else like um, anxiety or depression where you can't see it, um, with hoarding, you can see it. The evidence is right there. You can't move around your home like you used to be able to. Why is it that people who are hoarders can't see that it's a problem? Yeah, there's there's really three big things that go on into the types of symptoms that we see in, in compulsive hoarding. Uh, so one is difficulties with information processing. So they have difficulties with attention, concentration, um, organization, and decision-making. Um, so sometimes that leads to not necessarily being aware of a problem. I'm just messy, you know, just a little mm-hmm. disorganized. Um, secondly is um, problems with their beliefs. So they have what's called a double-barreled reinforcement that they like doing what they're doing. They're interested in like acquiring things as the thrill of the hunt, or I could really use this for some reason in some way, or boy, this person will really like this and it feels good. And sometimes they do the behaviors too to make themselves feel less bad if they're really stressed, um, mourning the loss of something. This may be a thing that they do to feel less bad. So there's a double-barreled level of reinforcement where they don't notice it, and they see things differently than we do. So this could be used in some way someday, or this is so unique and different. And then there's problems in behavior, and that's where the avoidance you know comes into play, where they realize that they've got clutter and it can cause them problems in life, but they feel too overwhelmed to deal with it, or I'll just deal with it later, putting things off, but then the thrill of the hunt and the acquiring, so doing too much of some kind of behavior, again, it serves a purpose and it tends to elevate the mood and at the same time kind of put aside some difficult emotions. Dr. Shawshank, if you have this disorder, what, what can you do to treat this? Oh, what should family members do? Yes. Yes, well, family plays a huge role in this, and this is actually uh, something in my entire career of working in mental health. Um, this is the condition that, in my books, is the most challenging to treat, um, wow. but also the most rewarding uh, to treat because you can really make some good progress. The trick is getting plugged in with the right system of care. This is a systems-based approach, and I think exactly, you know, you mentioned the word family. We have to have family and functional friends. I should say functional family members and functional friends involved because you really need a team. It's well, a team having approach. them just come and clean everything out doesn't work either because then they just continue hoarding. Exactly, because the clutter in and of itself is not the problem. It's a manifestation of what the problem is, which is difficulties with information processing. So it's very practical strategies we uh, teach people in terms of organization, um, decision-making. We also focus in on the difficulties in their thinking and learning how to challenge those acquisition beliefs right in the moment, and then also working on very practical um, decluttering exercises. How do you sort into categories? Um, how do you use your living spaces for that logical capacity that they have for items? But you really do need a team approach, and it is a longer-term treatment. Another absolutely essential component of treatment is doing the therapy in home. So you're actually physically in their environment wow. working for those things. And it's actually, uh, in all honesty, it's been a challenge for mental health providers to be able to do that because sometimes liability reasons, they don't want you going off-site um, into a person's home mm-hmm. uh, and for billing reasons uh, that you may not be able to bill for your services outside of that. If people uh, recognize that maybe they need to seek help, what should they do? 
contact their uh, local primary care physician may be the first place to start um, to be able to look at what resources are available. I often find uh, county social workers actually might be in a great position to be able to identify what resources are available in the community. We've been talking about hoarding disorder with Mayo Clinic psychologist Dr. Craig Sawchuk. Fascinating. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Sawchuk. Great. Thank you again for having me. And that's our program for this week. Find more information on Mayo Clinic News Network. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website radio.mayoclinic.org Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.